morning and welcome to Excel Church. And welcome to the final week of the 30-day church challenge. Uh, we have been for the past four weeks on a wonderful journey together. And we've been taking a challenge to grow um, in our relationship with God. And in turn, because of that, as he's speaking to us and changing us and transforming us, that we would be able to transform the church. And so what we have been discovering is that the church is not a place or a building, but it really is a community, one that we are creating now um, as we relaunch and one that we have an opportunity to make in the image of God's church and in the way that God desires for it to be. And so it has been wonderful to go on this journey with you. I don't know about you, but I have found such incredible revelation um, and just thought-provoking um, exercises as we've been going on this journey together that have blessed me personally and I know will help me as I um, am a part of the church. So as you are um, getting your Bibles together, we're still in the book of Acts. Just to kind of recap for those who are joining us for the first time, um, this is a, a series that is five weeks long. And um, when we first started the challenge, um, I shared with you about community. And we looked at the importance of being a part of an authentic community. And that week, we, every week we've had a challenge. And so the weekly challenge in that week was to commit to joining a small group, which is our Facebook e-group. And so if you had already joined the Facebook e-group, the challenge was to become more involved, um, to engage, to lead, to interact. Um, then three weeks ago, we discussed that we were wired for worship. Somebody say that with me, wired for worship. And um, we discussed how, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, uh, worship is a verb uh, that should touch all aspects of our life, um, how our just our how we should just take our ordinary life, our eating, our sleeping, our going to work, our walking around, and give that to God as an act of worship. And so that was the challenge, was to commit to coming to worship service each week, but also to take our lives and use our lives as worship to God. Then two Sundays ago, we talked about um, spiritual growth. And I shared with you that that is one of the most exciting topics for me that I enjoy studying and applying in my own life. Uh, we discussed that our life is about growth and that growth is about transformation. Somebody say transformation. And as we transform, we really just think and act more like Jesus. And so the weekly challenge was to spend more time with him. Um, to over the next 21 days to read your Bible for at least five minutes a day. Um, and if you are used to doing that, then to go to 15 minutes a day. But depending on where you are in your walk with the Lord, that you find a point that um, is going to be realistic and sustainable for you and to begin to implement that. And then last Sunday, Last Sunday, my sermon was on stewardship of your time and your talents and your treasure. And I share with you the story of the shrewd manager from the book of Luke 16. And the challenge was to commit to increasing your stewardship through giving and serving. And so we discussed several ways to do that. And so today we'll learn in our final challenge by looking at the fifth purpose of the church, and that is 
outreach. Somebody say that with me, outreach. And so find your Bibles. Let's get back to our uh, key scripture for the series, Acts chapter two. And then I'm going to read to you uh, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter two. I'm going to look at uh, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let's read that last sentence one more time. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, how do you suppose that happened? Go ahead, you can comment, share that with us in the comment. How do you suppose that happened? Certainly there was a magnetism to the church, uh, the devotion, the unity, the generosity. But no one would know these things unless the church, the members were talking about it, sharing it with their friends, outside of the church. So I want to talk to you today about the fifth purpose of the church, outreach. Somebody say that with me, outreach. So I've titled this message, Lost and Found. Lost and Found. So I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We've talked about this before. Um, and so I know some of you... <laughs> who have been with the ministry for a while will be like, I remember, I remember when you taught on this before. And then if there are those of us, of course, who are brand new to the ministry, welcome. Um, we'll all go through this together. And then there are those of you who have been studying the Bible for a long time and you have very familiar with these passages as well. And then there are those of you that are hearing it for the first time. We're all going to make it through together this morning because we're going to the book of Luke chapter 15. And I want to read into your hearing a couple passages that will really set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today, which we said is outreach. So first, let me read you Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Are we ready? If you have your Bibles, read it along with me. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. 
Now let's take, let's tackle that one. Wait, let me give you the lost coin as well. Ready for verse eight? Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. All right, so we're going to pause right there for a second. Now, the literal Greek adds, which of you being a shepherd of a hundred sheep and loses one of them? That's how the story begins. And to, to really um, put yourself in the context of Middle Eastern culture, as I make sure that we try to do when we're reading the scripture so that we can understand exactly what Jesus was communicating and how it would have resonated with his listener. Um, for his listener, that type of question would have triggered them um, because saving face is very important and to have lost a sheep, um, that would have been something that no one would have admittedly um, said that they would do. So when he says that question to begin with, which one of you, they're immediately thinking like, not I, I wouldn't lose a sheep. Um, a sheep might wander off, but we would never be so careless to lose one. And so this is a story about a shepherd like none of them were used to have an imagining. And so in this story, as Jesus is setting it up for them, the shepherd has 100 sheep and he leaves the other 99 in the open country. He doesn't bring them back to the city. He doesn't corral them for the night. Um, he leaves them to go find the one that is lost. Rejoice with me, he says to his friends. I found what is lost. And then the second story starts with the same hypothetical. Suppose one of you, and the literal translation would be, what woman among you having 10 coins and loses one of them? Again, to save face, the answer has to be none of us. I mean, I wouldn't do that. No woman in a Middle Eastern village would ever lose a coin. They were too rare and too valuable. So for them and their culture, again, as we're reading it, you might be thinking that's no big deal. But to put yourself in that context, in their culture, that was a big deal. And that's not something they would readily admit to doing. Cash um, is, is something that you use for emergencies to make purchases. Um, but coins are valuable. And um, most exchanges that they would do would be with bartering with ever, where, wherever that was possible, exchanging one thing for another. So when you had a coin, a coin was rare, a coin was valuable, um, and losing it is not something that they would consider um, a, a rational, reasonable person to do. And so this woman has 10 of them, um, and this may have been her dowry. A normal village woman uh, would make jewelry out of them, maybe wear them around her neck for safekeeping. So this lost coin that we're talking about is really, really precious. And so they say she scours the house until she finds it. And when she does, she calls her friends to the party. Now she says, as we just saw a moment ago, rejoice with me 
I found what I lost. Stick with me. Now, they're not wanting to admit that they would lose a coin. Um, and if they did, they this is this is pretty much what Jesus is showing in this in this scenario. She throws a party. She rejoices. Jesus describes it like no woman they had previously known. And then he tells a third story about a prodigal son. Now, this story I've talked to you about, and I've broken this down to you before, but again, I need to break it down again uh, for those who have not heard this interpretation. Verse 11 says, he also said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to him to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field uh, to feed pigs. He longed to eat his field from the pots that the pigs were eating but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, I want to pause there for one moment because I want to start to really show you that this story starts with something unusual. Um, the son um, asked his father, right, to divide the inheritance. And he takes his share of the estate and he moves to a foreign country. And he is there and he's basically, he, he squanders all of it in just reckless living. And, but he returns back to his home and he's welcomed by his family in a surprising way. And again, if you look at this in our culture, you might think, oh, okay, that's, that sounds reasonable. But let's go back to Middle Eastern culture for a moment. Um, the story starts off with divide your inheritance so that I can have my share of the estate. And in their culture, again, that's not something that is typical. That's not something that you would do. Um, it is really something that would be considered very insulting to ask while your, your father is alive that he would give you something that you would really not be entitled to until after his death. So that's the first thing. Um, but to everyone's surprise in this story, um, the father does. And so it is important that 
the son is asking for something that is is um, not typical, but yet again, we're in a scenario where in this story is happening. And so it's important that we recognize that in their culture, that's almost like saying, I wish you were dead because I want my money now, but it happens. And so the next words are not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. Notice he didn't leave immediately. He left when? Not long after that. And as I've taught before, that's because he had to first liquidate his inheritance. So he had to convert this into money. And so that means he would have been going um, from door to door trying to convince people to buy a piece of uh, the family property to buy a piece of his inheritance. And so when he left every door behind, um, those people in that community would have been aware of what he had done. So this wasn't like a private affair between him and his family. Now the community would have been aware and they would have known that he was essentially um, disparaging or had insulted his father in having done this. And so um, bringing shame to the patriarch of a family, again, in their culture, was not something that you would do. And so in this point, he has done the unthinkable and everybody knows about it, all right? And so the scorn is mounting. Um, he's probably feeling more and more pressure to get out of town. And so now we are in this, this verse, he's, he's got what he needs to get, he's gone. Um, but as soon as he sold the last of his possessions, and by now the, the town is probably openly antagonistic about what he's done. He's in this faraway country and he runs out of money. Verse 13 says he squandered his wealth in wild living. He wasted it in plain sight of the citizens of this faraway country um, who themselves are Middle Easterners. And they too are unimpressed with this frivolous young man who is now out of money. And the polite way a Middle Easterner would say, um, get out of town, you know, go away, is to offer them a job that they think that they will refuse. And so when he asks for a job and they offer him um, to be a pig herder, the expectation was that he would just leave town. But he was so desperate that he did the unthinkable. He took a job that no really respectable um, person would have taken because to them, pigs are unclean animals. And according to the law of Moses, and they have to be fed seven days a week, which meant what? They couldn't keep the Sabbath. So that's why it was unthinkable for them to take a job like that. But he took the job. It's a terrible job. Um, it didn't pay well enough to survive off of. He was still hungry, but he took the job. That is an a, a illustration of the depths of his desperation. And so in this hole of self-pity, in this place, he begins to think honestly about himself. And he begins to, you know, wonder, what am I doing? I, I know there's no life for me here. This is not my home. Yet, I believe he would be thinking, I mean, what can I do? It's not like I can go back to my father. I've insulted him. 
I've shamed him in front of the entire village. There's no way I can go back. I'm a complete failure. He has nothing to offer. And in this culture, the Middle Eastern sons are supposed to provide for their fathers in their old age. So now he, he can't even provide for his father. But he begins to think. And he realizes that he may not be able to go back and just, you know, be restored to the family and just be back in good graces. But he remembers even my father's servants live better than I'm living right now. Maybe I could just go home and ask to be on payroll. I'll, I'll work. I'll be a servant. I'll serve you. Anything would be better than what I'm experiencing right now. And so that was his plan. He said, I'll go home. I'll admit I was a fool. And instead of asking to be reinstated as a son, I'll ask to be hired as a servant. Let's fast forward. As he's coming back home, Remember what I told you about the culture. Remember what I told you about the villagers and how they would have known about this and how they would feel. It's really important to see a couple of things unfold here. The father, because of his experience, knows two things. He knows that his son is immature and impulsive and probably bound not to be successful with this plan he hatched. But he also knows that if he ever comes home, it's going to be difficult because of that. The second thing is he knows that the villagers are not going to treat him well and that the word will pass around and that they will mock him, maybe even spit on him, um, if not outright hurt him if he were to come back. And so he knows that his son, in order to get home, will have to go through all of that and endure all that scorn to even get to their home. So knowing this, what does he do in anticipation of the son's return? It's nothing short of amazing. Now look at the scripture again. With all that history and all that background, I want you to look at it again. When the son returns, the father does five things that in the Middle Eastern culture um, would have, again, not been considered common. The first thing the father does was what? He runs. Somebody say, he runs. When word comes to him that his son has been seen on the outskirts of the village, the father runs to him instead of letting his son walk the walk of shame. It's an outrageous thing because in another context, that was not respectable to be seen running. Um, they, they wore long, ever-flowing robes and they were stately and, you know, stoic and dignified and it wasn't considered very dignified to be running but yet I hope you're catching this he ran to his son he lists his robe exposing his ankles and ran to his son <sighs> he was filled with compassion Luke 15 20 says but while he was still a long ways off his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. That's how a father feels about his children. Totally motivated by love, even for his wayward children. So the father runs through the village. He knows he's creating a spectacle. He knows that what he's doing is, might even attract a crowd. He knows they will talk about this, <laughs> but he cares more about his son than his reputation. 
Imagine this for just a moment from the son's perspective. He knows that he's going to face this type of humiliation, but instead of actually having to go through it, to see his father run to him instead, to endure that type of humiliation for him, to greet him with such love, that's the love that our father has for us. As he comes to that village, instead of the scene that he is been building up as he's walking home and you know how it is like when you're getting ready to face something and you're getting ready to have a conversation and you're playing in your head and what I'm going to say and how we're going to react and what I'm going to have to deal with and none of what he had anticipated happens the worst moments of his life wind up being what he thought would be the worst moments of his life wind up being precious and to his utter amazement Rather than experiencing a ruthless hostility, he finds a visible demonstration of his father's love. The father runs. The second thing the father does is he kisses the son. Somebody say he kisses the son. The text says in Luke 15, 20, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, can you picture it? The son had pictured himself coming home, abasing himself, begging. He had rehearsed this over and over on his mind as he's getting his way there. First, he'd you know, have to beg on bended knee. But no, they embrace eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder, and his father kisses him. The Greek word used here is katafalu. Literally, it means to kiss again and again. So it's one of those kind of kisses, not just one kiss, but an again and again and again and again kiss. Luke 15, 19 says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of our hired men. That was his plan. To, to go back and to do that. But now look at the actual speech. Look at Luke 15, 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. What's missing from the, the speech now? The request to become a servant. Why do you think that's missing? Go ahead, share that with me in the comments. Why do you think it's missing? Because he can't carry out his plan. He can't kneel. With his father's arms wrapped around him, he can't get to the ground to, to do all of that. He's overwhelmed by the father's love. Isn't that something? He's overwhelmed by the father's love. His plan was to earn back his father's favor, but his father showed him that there was no need to earn it. That he would accept him back just the way he was. Third thing the father does is call for a robe to be put on his son. Luke 15, 22. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Imagine that. Imagine that. Who owned the best robe in the family? He did. The father and the son are standing on the edge of the village and the father wants the whole village, not just his son to know, but the whole village to know we're good. I have accepted him back. I have accepted him back. 
Go get the best robe I have so he can wear it. And as he walks home through the village, you all can know we're good. Now, see, that just speaks to me because as I'm listening and I'm sharing, even now I'm reminded that I'm talking about a father that goes beyond the father in this story. But let me finish. Let me finish. We're going to get there. The fourth thing the father does is he calls for a ring and sandals. Luke 15, 22, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now the ring is probably a signet ring and it's the ring the father would have used to like sign um, legal di documents and things like of that nature. Um, so it would have been a trusted, powerful ring. Um, and yeah, and the sandals also are a sign that he's a free man because servants didn't have them. They walked barefoot. So again, this is all symbolic that you are restored. You're, you, you will not return as my servant. You are my son whom I love dearly and whom I restore fully to the position that you belong. And then the final thing he says, bring the fatted calf and kill it um, in verse 23. Not a sheep, not a chicken, not the cheap way, but the most expensive way, the fatted calf. And again, this is a form of celebration, like we saw with the lost coin, like we saw with the lost sheep. All right, let's close this up. Let's put a bow on this. Let's look at what is God saying to us. What are you catching from this? Let me hear it. What are you catching from all three of these parables back to back? What is Jesus saying? Missing things matter enough to warrant an intentional search. We find everyone who's missing and bring it, whether it's the sheep, whether it's the coin, whether it's the child. But because of the remarkable compassion, Jesus is waiting with open arms. Now, here's what I want you to see. When we've experienced this being lost and being found, we're compelled with um celebration when that occurs. And I think our final challenge for our series is to see things the way Jesus sees things and to do something shepherd-like or woman-like or father-like and find the missing and invite them home. Somebody say that. Find the missing and invite them home. Because as we saw the father do, they will be shown undeserved love, undeserved acceptance, undeserved forgiveness. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter how far they've gone. It doesn't matter how low they have stooped. The, the indication that he wants us to take from giving us these parables back to back to back is that people that are lost matter to God. So people that are lost, if they matter to God, they ought to matter to us. Outreach ought to be a, a goal that we set in our hearts that we want to do. Like we might set in our goals that we want to have a certain income or set in our goals that we want to have a certain relationship status. As believers that are, are committed to being used by Christ, we ought to also have a goal that we would find someone that is lost and bring them back home. That's outreach. That's all outreach is. And so I want to give us our final challenge as we close our series 
And that is to care about what Jesus cares about and to do something about it. All right. So your first option is to do this. I want you to pray an eight word prayer with me. And the prayer is very simple. It goes like this. God, give me your heart for the lost. Somebody type that. God, give me your heart for the lost. That's it. An eight second prayer. God, give me your heart for the lost. I want you to really, really bring that into your spirit right now. God, give me your heart for the lost. And pray and pray and pray that. If you just do that every day for the next week, that is a prayer that is powerful. It doesn't have to be long to be powerful. That's a powerful prayer. And God is a prayer answering God. Imagine what will happen through you when God answers that prayer. Not only might it change your life, it's going to change someone else's life as well. Now, next week, as you know, we're going to be starting a brand new series and we're going to be in person. Somebody say, yes, we're going to be in person. What an awesome time for you to act upon what we just learned about just now. What an awesome time for you to be able to grab a friend, invite them and say, listen, I want you to come with me. I'm going to be going to a church at the natatorium and um, we're going to have an opportunity to just receive the word and break bread and fellowship and, and be with other believers. And I would invite you to invite, I would like to invite you to join me. You know what? You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Somebody might say, oh, you know, I've got other plans. But somebody might say, you know what? I think I would like to come. How can we be more like each one of the people we've seen in these parables? How can we maybe put aside some other things and go out and search and do an all out search party for those that are lost? Maybe there's just one person in your heart and on your mind right now that you might even want to share this broadcast with. Maybe there's one person on your mind right now that you know they've drifted far away from God and that it's time for them to come back home. Why don't you grab them, pick them up, bring them with you to church next Sunday. And as we continue, the third option is to share your faith with someone. In this week's readings, you're going to come across a simple method that's called the bridge. If you take that challenge, you will be able to accept this option and I will post it in the Facebook group so you can see it as well. So you have to pick which one works for you, but do something this week. Come on, somebody say, do something that will bring you closer to doing the will of God. And we will all celebrate with you. Like in each one of these scenarios, there will be a celebration in heaven beyond that which you can even comprehend when a lost soul comes back to Christ. So are you on assignment? Do you accept the challenge this week? I believe you do. I know you do. I know you do. So I know when I see you to make sure I have extra space next week, a space for you and your family and the one that you're going to bring as you come to worship with us at the Natatorium at 10 o'clock on next Sunday. So I'm excited about that. We'll be talking more in the Facebook group. So make sure you join there if you have not. And then if you're there, go ahead and start to interact. Go ahead to love on one another, communicate with one another and build that community that we've talked about a few weeks ago. All right, come on, let's pray. Father, 
I thank you for this day. I thank you for this word. I thank you for just the reminder of what's important. I thank you, Father God, for bringing it back to our forefront that we would be able to unify with you and your purpose for our lives. God, I pray that you would just really answer our very simple prayer to give us your heart for the lost. God, touch us, revive us, renew our minds, give us the mind of Christ and help us in every way to be more like you. Lord, help us to bring souls to you. Help us to evangelize, not just in our words, but in our deeds and in the way that we live our life. And let our life bring you glory. These blessings we ask in your holy and sacred name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you next week.